This is going to be our last Sunday in John, at least for a couple of months. We're going to pick back up uh, in September, right where we leave off today. But over the summer months, we have 13 Sundays, and we're going to spend those 13 Sundays walking through the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to take one chapter a week. We will not be able to cover everything in the book of Hebrews uh, over the summer months, but we want to hit the high points and sort of see uh, the, the mountain peaks, as it were, and I think that will help you as you go back and study the book of Hebrews. If you've ever read through the book, uh, you might find yourself just saying, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of stuff that's maybe confusing. There's a lot of stuff that's hard to sort out, and so hopefully if we can put some of the big pieces in place, that will help you in your personal understanding of the book. This morning, our passage is John 6, and I just want to draw your attention to John 6, verse 1. The first two words in English are after this, after this. That is a vague phrase in English, after this. It's a vague phrase in English because it's a vague phrase in the Greek. And what John is doing here is he's not laying out a tight chronology of events, but he is giving us a broad sequence of events. And so what we're about to read, it happens sometime after the story that we've just been talking about, where Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem, he's observed a feast there. We don't know which feast it was. Now he's back in Galilee. It could be a few weeks, it could be a few months, but we come now to one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. And I say it's one of the most famous. Really, I should probably say it's the most famous because it's the only miracle from Jesus' earthly ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels. If you want to call the resurrection a miracle, we could call it a miracle, and you could say that shows up in all four Gospels. But I'm talking about during his preaching, teaching ministry. This is the one miracle that he performed that is recorded in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John. That makes sense because it was clearly his most public miracle. There was 5,000 men present, plus women, plus children. There's a huge crowd of people that witnessed this miracle. You compare this to some of the previous miracles, some of the previous signs that we've read about in the Gospel of John. You remember when Jesus was in Cana at the wedding and they ran out of wine and Jesus stepped in and fixed that problem and there was a lesson in that. We talked about that story. One of the things we talked about in the story of the water to wine in Cana is that the only people who knew about that was Jesus' mom, the servants, and his closest disciples. No one else knew what had even happened, and Jesus was fine with that. He didn't need everyone there to give him a round of applause and say, way to go, that was really nice. That wasn't the point of the sign. We talked a few weeks ago about Jesus healing an official's son. Nobody broadcasted that. Nobody went and told a whole bunch of people immediately about that. It was just sort of done quietly. It was done discreetly. We talked about Jesus recently healing a lame man. There was a few folks who found out that that happened, but not a lot. In fact, it's interesting in the story, the lame man didn't even really realize who Jesus was and all the hustle and bustle and coming and going. He didn't even know who had performed the sign. This one's different. This is a massive crowd of people who experienced this sign that Jesus performed. Just to give it a little bit of context, I put this in your notes. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee during the Passover 
celebration. So just, I'm going to put a map on the screen for those of us who are geographically challenged and we can just remind ourselves of where we're at. Judea is south. I've cut Judea south. It'd be down here in the woods somewhere. And that's where Jerusalem was. That's where Jesus has gone to celebrate this feast in the previous chapter. But now he's traveled back up north to Galilee. And you can see, I know it's small print, but you can see Nazareth in the red there, the red print of Nazareth. That was his hometown. This is where almost all the disciples were from. This was kind of like going back to home base for Jesus, right? Going down to Jerusalem, down south to Jerusalem was kind of like going out of state, but going back to Galilee, to Nazareth, and to Cana, and to Capernaum, and Bethsaida, and all of these towns, this was sort of Jesus' neighborhood, right? This is where the disciples were from. They felt very comfortable here, and this is where he performs this sign. Not down in Jerusalem, where they are celebrating the Passover. You notice that John gives us a note here that it was about the time of the Passover, Jesus, that's in verse 4, he doesn't go down south to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover. He stays up in Galilee. Pilgrims would have been traveling. People would have been thinking about all the stories involved in the Passover. And this is when Jesus performs this very, very public miracle. Just to give you some chronology context, if it's the Passover, a year earlier, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he cleared the temple. John tells that story in John chapter 2. A year later, Jesus is going to travel again to Jerusalem knowing it's his very last trip to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, and he's going to be crucified. John talks about three Passovers. We're on Passover number two and Jesus is celebrating it up in Galilee. I want you to realize this is the fourth sign. The feeding of the 5,000 is the fourth sign Recorded in John. I've mentioned the others. Uh, Jesus turns the water into wine. He heals the official son. He heals the lame man. And this now is sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the big idea. This is the one central truth that the whole story hangs on. Jesus is the greater Moses who came to rescue God's people, not from a political enemy, but he came to rescue God's people from their sins. He's the greater Moses who came to rescue God's people from their sins. Now, you fill those blanks in. We live thousands of years later. We live on the other side of the world. Most of us are not ethnically Jewish. We read that statement. We write that statement. We think about that statement. It doesn't seem that big to us. I just need to try to help you understand how big of a reality this was for the Jewish people watching Jesus perform this sign. To realize how big it is, I need you to realize how big Moses was. And I'm going to try to explain to you how big Moses was by talking about our first president, George Washington. Okay? I just want you to think for a minute about George Washington and the influence that he has had on the United States. A great military general leading armies in the Revolutionary War, the first president of the United States. You pull money out of your pocket, you find his face on some of that money. We carry him around with us almost everywhere we go. There's a, the capital of our nation is named after Washington, Washington, D.C. There's a state, one out of 50, ends up named after Washington, the state of Washington. There are in the United States 300 towns, communities or cities named Washington, over 300. 
right? We like this guy. What are we going to name it? Let's build a new city. Uh, Washington. That's our go-to. Colleges, universities, parks, bridges, all sorts of things named after George Washington. We may not think about him a whole lot, but when you start to think about all the things, institutions, places that bear his name or his likeness or his image, you start to realize this, this guy's a big deal in the United States of America, right? He is clearly one of the most, if not the most important of all of our founding fathers, so to speak. And what I need you to understand is that it's really not a good comparison for me to say George Washington to us is kind of like Moses to the Jews. That's really not a good comparison. That's really apples and oranges. Or if you want to put them both on the scale, it's really imbalanced in the sense that Moses to the Jewish people is far more important than George Washington is to Americans. Far, far more important. I don't know that I could really overstate the importance of Moses and the, the shadow that he cast. He was the first general of this nation when they are brought out of Egypt. He is the one that God uses to perform not just military victories, but amazing foundational stories, signs and wonders in the destruction that God wrought on the Egyptian people. He's the first judge. Remember the story of people coming to Moses out in the wilderness and he's deciding all of their cases and, and deciding between these disputes. He is above all the first true religious leader for the nation of Israel. And we could talk about Abraham and how important Abraham is, but Moses is when they actually become a people in a nation and they start to think about having land. Moses is everything to these people. It's almost impossible for us to think, well, maybe if you took George Washington and you combined him with Billy Graham and the Pope, all rolled into one person, that starts to get you thinking about how important Moses was, how big the shadow that he cast was on Jewish history. And yet John is telling us this story. Matthew's told it, Mark's told it, Luke's told it, now John's telling it. And in the story, everything that John is telling us is pointing us to the reality that Jesus is greater than Moses. And for us, it doesn't sound that revolutionary, right? We live thousands of years later, other side of the world, we don't have Jewish DNA, and we just sort of hear that and say, well, of course he is. But for the people who were first reading this story, the people who were there for the miracle, this was a remarkable idea. The greater Moses has come. And John connects these dots in an interesting way. He connects the dots as he describes this story by describing Jesus doing all of the things that Moses did, right? You go back and you read the story of Moses. All the things that Moses did, Jesus is doing a lot of those things in this story. Moses takes a crowd of people and he leads them out into the wilderness. What does Jesus do here? He's got a crowd of people following him out into the middle of nowhere, Right? That's a detail, and John's sort of trying to get your attention. Alarm bells ought to be going off. Moses goes up on a mountain. What does Jesus do here? He goes up on the side of a mountain. Why does John tell you that detail? Why do you and I need to know it? It's because he's trying to help 
You and I connect all the dots. He's got this crowd of people. They're out in the wilderness. He goes up on the mountain. It's the Passover. Moses led Israel in celebrating the very first Passover. And John throws that detail in. Verse 4, it was the Passover. You can't understand this miracle if you don't understand that it was the Passover. Moses, the one who provides through the Lord, working through Moses, provides bread for the people, manna for them to eat. Jesus performs the exact same sign. Hungry people in the wilderness, leader on the mountain, and Jesus provides bread for them to eat. All of these details, like little alarm bells going off saying, wait a minute, this story sounds familiar. Wait a minute, this story is ringing a bell in my mind. Wait a minute, this is making me think of something I've read in the Old Testament. And John is connecting all these dots, and he's helping you and I connect all these dots to say, Jesus is the greater Moses, the true Moses, the ultimate Moses, the one who came not to save his people from a political enemy, but the one who came to save his people from their sins. And so we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. I want to start off with a few thoughts about discipleship. I want you to see these lessons. What do we learn about following Jesus from the disciples? And what do we learn about following Jesus from the crowd? I just want to throw a few thoughts your way before we come back and settle on Jesus and who he is. First of all, let's talk about Philip and Andrew. If you can read this story and not feel bad for Philip, you're a mean person. Philip totally totally, 100% from the word get-go gets set up in this story. Notice what John tells us here. He tells us, verse 6, Jesus said this. He asked a question to test him. And he's saying the question, not just to the disciples, but to Philip. Philip. Where are we going to get bread to feed these people? And John says, just so you understand, he already knew what he was going to do. He could have said, Philip, here's the plan. He could have said, Peter, you're the leader. This is what we're going to do. Get the guys going. Instead, he singles out Philip. And when you read the story, you ought to come away saying, I kind of feel bad for Philip. Right? I would not want to be Philip in this story because Philip came away sort of scratching his head. Why did he single out Philip? Maybe I could put the map back up on the screen just for a second and I could show you something. You notice Galilee is sort of that darker tan and the Sea of Galilee is there in the middle. On the top right, the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, there's a city called Bethsaida. That was Philip's hometown. That's where he was from. We know that from earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I believe it's verse 44. Philip was from that town. Guess where they were when this happened? Northeast of the Sea of Galilee. One of the reasons I think Jesus picks on Philip is he's in Philip's home area. This is his, his neighborhood. This is where he grew up. He had local connections. He knew people. He knew places. He knew what was available. And so he singles Philip out almost as if to say, Philip, We're in your town. You're our host here. Where are we going to get bread for for all of these people to eat? So he knew where Philip was from, but more importantly, Jesus knew Philip. Not just where he was from, but he knew Philip. One of my favorite Bible commentators is a guy named John MacArthur, and John MacArthur calls Philip a bean counter. A bean counter. As a guy with an accounting degree, I resemble that remark. And I understand and empathize with Philip. Because when Jesus looks at Philip and he says, Philip, where are we going to get bread 
for all of these people to eat. Philip sort of pulls a Peter here and he just spills his guts. And what he's been thinking about just comes flowing out of his mouth. And what comes flowing out of his mouth is, if we had 200 denarii, if we had eight months salary, everyone here could get a bite. Meaning, Philip's already been thinking about how they're going to feed these people. He's been worrying about it. He's been crunching the numbers in his head. He's been looking around and he's counting 10, 20, 30, and he's, that's half the crowd, double that, times the food and the bites. and He's got an answer right away. Jesus, if we had eight months pay, everyone could have a single bite. And Jesus has totally set him up. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus had a plan. What Jesus wanted is for Philip to feel the weight of the impossibility of the situation. Jesus wanted Philip to understand you are in a situation that requires faith. Right? That's on your notes. Jesus will put his followers in situations that require faith. Can I just be real honest? Jesus has in effect, given Philip a question, a responsibility, a burden that is way above Philip's pay grade. A better answer from Philip would have just been, Jesus, I have no idea. Jesus, I can't do it. Jesus, we're going to need you to do this. He saw Jesus. He knew about the water to wine in Cana. He'd seen Jesus heal people and instead of having faith in Jesus' ability to come through, Philip's response is just sort of a doomsday calculation, right? Philip says, look, even if we scrounged up what we had and we had 200 denarii, which we probably don't have, eight months salary, Jesus, eight months working, everyone would get a single bite. Then what? Then you've got an angry mob wanting more. Jesus sets him up. He puts him in a situation that requires faith, and Philip falls short. You say, ah, but, but Andrew's in the story too, right? Good old Andrew. Andrew's introduced, again, as always, as Peter's brother. Andrew never gets to be just Andrew. He's always living in Peter's shadow. And Andrew comes into this story, and he says, there's a small boy here who has a lunch. Small boy with a lunch. And at first you look at Andrew and you say, Philip. Why didn't Philip bring the boy? Andrew brought the boy. Andrew knew, I bring people to Jesus and good things happen. That's what Andrew did. He brought Peter to Jesus. Peter got saved. He brings the boy to Jesus. Later, this is an interesting story that we're going to come to months down the road. There's some Greek men who come looking for Jesus. They go to Philip first. And do you know what Philip does? He takes them to Andrew. And Andrew takes them to Jesus. So you say, Andrew, he really came through bringing the boy, right? But did you notice the last thing Andrew said? It's kind of a hedge, right? I give him kudos. He brought the boy to Jesus. And everybody looking around, Andrew had the guts to say, hey, this is what we have to work with. Here's a boy. And he presents it to Jesus. But then Andrew comes back and he says, but what are they, the five loaves and the two fishes, what are they for so many people? Like, this is what we got, but it ain't going to be enough. Both of these guys find themselves in a situation that requires faith. Philip pretty much falls flat on his face. 
Andrew comes out of the gate strong, but then he kind of falters and he's hedging here. And I'm just pointing out the reality to you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you most certainly will find your situations in life, find yourself in situations in life that require you to have faith. Situations where you're going to look around and you're going to say, I don't see the way out. I don't know the way up. I don't see how you're going to bring good out of this. Lord, I don't know how you're going to handle this because this is completely above my pay grade. And what I'm saying to you is that's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. Jesus does not want self-sufficient people. Jesus wants people who acknowledge their dependency on him. And to make that happen, to bring that about in your life at different times, in different ways, in different places, you'll find yourselves in situations where you say, I don't know what to do here. This really doesn't seem like it has a good outcome either way. And what Jesus wants is not your ideas. He doesn't need your suggestions. He's not dependent on your problem-solving ability. He just wants you to acknowledge, I don't know what to do. But I trust that you can do something good in this situation. So you're following Jesus. You'll find yourself in situations that require faith. Secondly, let's talk about the crowd. Using Jesus for your own personal agenda is not the same as believing in Jesus. It's not the same. Verse 2. A large crowd was following him. They were following Jesus. That's a good thing to do, right? You recognize something special in this guy and you say, I'm going to follow him. Well, that's good. Why were they following? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Listen, as this chapter unfolds, and we're going to pick it up on the other side of the summer, but as this chapter unfolds, you start to see very clearly what these people were after. They wanted to have a miracle worker in their hip pocket. They wanted to have somebody who could get them out of a bind on standby. They wanted to have somebody that was a fixer on their speed dial. It all becomes apparent in verse 15 where it says they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They were so excited about having somebody that they could use for their own agenda. They were ready. Think about the, the magnitude of this in ancient Rome to declare Jesus the king. If that had happened and they had mobbed together and they had put Jesus up on their shoulders and carried him through the streets of Bethsaida, Caesar would have heard about it. And Caesar would have heard, if Jesus is your king, that means you're saying, I'm not your king. This was a rebellious attitude. These were people who were ready to go all in for Jesus as long as Jesus was all in with their agenda. We want more miracles. We want more signs. We want more healings. We want more of those tricks that you can do because they're really, really great. Do you know what we could do with a guy like you around? These people were willing to buy into Jesus as long as he was willing to buy into their agenda. That was the catch. It's so obvious as you read through John 6. And when you get to John 6, verse 66, and these people finally realize, it finally gets through their heads, Jesus is not going to do what we want him to do They all walk away, and they're done. If you're not going to do it my way, 
is what they're saying to Jesus. I have no interest in following you. Now, I'm going to follow you as long as I think I can pull the strings and manipulate you and just tell you how high to jump, when to jump, and you're just going to go after it. But once they realize Jesus isn't going to play their game, they all leave. Using Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. In the Bible Belt, there's a lot of people that go to church for a lot of different reasons. And we live in a time when that's sort of starting to change. The Bible Belt is not as bible as it used to be. Every year, statistics come out. There are more and more people who say, I am not affiliated with any church. I am not identifying with any particular faith. But in the Bible Belt, there's still a lot of people who go for a lot of different reasons. And on the outside, it might look like, look at all these people following Jesus. What a great thing. But you start to dig a, di- a little bit deeper and you realize you may have a John 6 situation going on in the Bible Belt. It may be that there's a lot of people following Jesus because they want to use him for their own aims, their own agendas, their own schemes, their own benefit. And John is saying to us in describing this crowd, he's saying that's entirely different than believing in Jesus. That's the call of this book, believe in Jesus. Not follow Jesus so you can use him to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but believe that he is who he claimed to be. Believe that he came to accomplish what he said he came to accomplish. That's entirely different than using Jesus. So, who is he? What do we learn about Jesus from the sign? I want to just throw three thoughts your way, three truths. What do we learn about Jesus from the sign? Number one, Jesus is the prophet, capital P. You notice in most English translations, down in verse 14, they capitalize prophet. He's not just a prophet, he's the prophet. And when you read that, the people saw the sign that he had done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. All of the people who said that were thinking about a verse in Deuteronomy that says this. Moses, speaking to the people, Moses is about to die. The people are about to go into the promised land, and Moses says, Yahweh, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He will send another prophet. Not just a line of prophets. He's going to send lots of prophets, but he's going to send a particular prophet. And the Jews historically understood this was connected with the Messiah. We're waiting, we're looking, we're watching, we're praying for this prophet to come. And they see Jesus multiply the loaves and they put the dots together. Can I tell you something? They're connecting the right dots here. They're not wrong to think about Deuteronomy and this promised prophet. They're exactly on track. This is the prophet that God has sent. That's their declaration. The problem is, their expectations of the prophet were completely off base. Moses was a prophet. He came and he rescued the people from the tyranny of the Egyptians and really kicked Egypt in the teeth. I mean, he showed Pharaoh who was boss. These people connect the dots and their mind immediately thinks not to Egypt but to Rome and they say, hey, the first prophet saved us from Egypt, maybe this prophet will save us from Rome. 
The first prophet kicked Pharaoh in the teeth. Maybe this prophet will kick Caesar in the teeth. This is the guy we need. And what do they do? John says in verse 15, they were about to come and take him and force him to be king. We're done with Caesar. You're our guy. Can I tell you what they didn't understand? They didn't understand that this prophet did not come to fight his enemies. He came to die for his enemies. This prophet did not come to establish some sort of nation state and to depose of the Romans. This prophet came to establish a church that would be made up of people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. They're ready for Jesus to smite his enemies. Jesus has come to lay down his life to save those who are in in enmity with the Father. His mission is entirely different than what they're looking for or what they're expecting. But he is the prophet. He is the one that Moses promised. Secondly, he's the king. In fact, he's the king of all kings. John 6, 15 Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I don't want to add to the Bible, but if you like to make notes, maybe you could just make a note out in the margin there by verse 15 that says, the king withdrew to the mountain by himself. My point here is this. Just because these people didn't get a mob together and declare Jesus king does not mean that he's not the king. Jesus did not need this wicked, sinful, selfish mob to declare him to be the king. He is the king. They can declare it. They can recognize it. They can fail to recognize it. He's the king any of those ways. Their recognition doesn't change it. Look, the lion is the king of the jungle, not because the zebras took a vote. It doesn't matter what the zebras think. It doesn't matter what any of the other animals think. He's the king. Why? Because he's the lion. That's why you're the king. God rules over the entire cosmos, not because we gather together in this room on Sunday and sing about that. God is sovereign not because we, his people, decided that. We can recognize that he's sovereign over our lives. We cannot recognize that he's sovereign over our lives. And guess what? Either way, he's completely sovereign over our lives. In this story, this mob wants to make Jesus the king. And they don't get the chance to do that. And in no way, shape, or form does that diminish the fact that Jesus is the king. You can recognize the kingship of Jesus, but you and I are not kingmakers. We don't get to decide who the king is. We don't have any authority in and of ourselves as created beings to pick and choose and decide this is our king, that's our king, now we have a new king. That is entirely above our pay grade. This story is teaching you. Jesus didn't need these people to acknowledge him as the king or to make him their king He was the king. He's the king who will rule all kings. And when he returns, all will recognize it. When he returns, we're not going to vote 
Like Jesus comes back, and then you get a ballot. Should this guy be king, yes or no? That's not how it works. When he comes back, he's the king. And everyone will acknowledge it. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we don't get a vote in that. He's the king. He's the prophet. He's the king. Lastly, Jesus can do much with little. Which might be, as I thought about it later this week, the understatement of the century. Really, you could say Jesus can do anything with nothing. But we're just going to go with, for the sake of the story, Jesus can do much with little. This is not the first time you've seen this idea in the Gospel of John. Do you remember John 1, verse 1 and 2? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that was created was created by the Word. And He did it out of nothing. He took nothing and he made everything. You've seen this idea in John and you see it again here when Andrew brings this boy and he says, here's a boy, verse 9, five barley loaves and two fish. Now, my guess is whether you like to eat out or you like to take your lunch or whatever, it's been a while since you had a lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. So let me just explain to you what it would have been like to be standing in the huddle when Jesus says, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? I don't know. We don't have enough money. Eight months salary, everybody gets one bite. I don't know what we're going to do. Andrew shows up and he says, hey, there's a boy, five, five loaves, two fish. I don't know that those are enough to feed so many. I just want to make sure you're picturing the right kind of thing. I can tell you growing up, when I read the word loaves, I thought about the big foot-and-a-half-long loaf of bread that my parents would buy from Albertsons down the street, and we'd have it for Sunday lunch. And I know you can't feed 5,000 people with five of those big loaves, but that's what my mind went to, right? A big, huge, honking piece of bread. You say, oh, that big, flaky, crusty bread, that's delicious. Or maybe your mind goes to, like, your favorite steakhouse, and they bring out those hot butter rolls, and you say, oh, they just melt in your mouth. They're my favorite. Keep the rolls coming. Bring them from the back. We want, we want rolls all day long. That's not the kind of rolls that we're talking about. When you talk about barley loaves, you need to think more of like a Ritz cracker, okay? Not the big foot-long French bread baked in the bakery. You're thinking about something that's kind of dry and crumbly and crusty and falls apart pretty easy, and it's not very big, it's pretty small, and it's made of barley. Now, I don't know what you think about barley. Can I tell you? by sharing a quote with you what they thought about barley in the ancient world. This is from a Jewish uh, philosopher named Philo. He said, barley, it's a foodstuff of somewhat doubtful merit. Barley is suited for irrational animals, and I love this, men in unhappy circumstances. Right? Can I give you the Coleman living translation of what Philo and, and John are saying here? This is allsups, okay? Allsups. Now look, some of you, are, you're cute and you want to be funny and you're going to come up to me afterwards and you're going to say, I really do love allsups. Allsups is delicious. If I just put an offer in front of you and said, I will buy you dinner anywhere in West Texas, not a single one of you would say, 
I want the Allsup's burrito. Now look, if you are in unhappy circumstances, the burrito from Allsup's works just fine. But it is questionable food stuff. It is better suited for unreasoning animals. Okay? So you've got the French bread loaf out of your brain. You've got the Logan's hot rolls out of your brain. And now you're thinking like Allsup's level, right? Andrew pipes up and he says, we got five barley loaves. We got five little crackers that would only be good for feeding to your dog. That's what we have to work with. And two fish. Now in my mind, again, just as a kid, probably this is from Sunday school pictures when you're little, I'm picturing something big. And so these are pictures of guys. How many of you have ever heard of Oki noodling? This is something they do in Oklahoma. They go noodling. And when you go noodling, you don't take a fishing pole with you and you don't take a net with you. You take your arm with you. And you get down in the creek. And when we lived in Kingfisher, there's two creeks. Kingfisher Creek and Little John Creek, they cross right there in town, and they flood all the time. They're flooded right now, so they can probably go oaky noodling on Main Street right now. There's water everywhere. When you go oaky noodling, you get down, and you feel in the bank for a hole in the bank where a catfish has sort of shimmied his way up there, and all you do is you reach in. Underwater, you just reach in, and you wait for the cat to clamp down on your arm, and then you squeeze, whatever you squeeze, you squeeze, and you pull that thing out of there. And there was a guy when we lived in Kingfisher. Seemed like about during noodling season. Got to get them when they're right after they're done spawning. Seemed like he was in the paper three or four times. And this was just small town fun, right? You get the newspaper. There's nothing in the newspaper. But you see this old boy and they say, Old Johnny been down at the creek noodling. And there he is holding his big cat up. And he's smiling, and you look at that ginormous fish, and you say, now that's a fish. You could feed some people with that thing. That is not what we're talking about when we talk about a little boy with five barley loaves and two fish. Some of you have been to Kenya with us, and you've had fish that look something like this. We're talking about little pickled minnows, right? And really, if you read some of the ancient historians and writers, they just sort of threw these in for flavor because the barley was questionable food stuff. So you pickle the minnows and you throw them in there, and when you eat the barley, you sort of just get it all down and you get a little bit of nourishment, but eh, it's not much. So you got the big giant cats out of your brain, and you got the French bread hot out of the oven out of your brain, and you're thinking about a couple of small barley crackers and a couple of these fish, and you realize why Andrew said what he said. One of his disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here. He's got five barley loaves, and he's got two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus takes the five crackers and the two little minnows, And he turns it into an all-you-can-eat buffet on the hills around the Sea of Galilee. Everyone eats all they want. And when they're done, they pick up 12 basketfuls left over. You can can read and look in commentaries and find 8,000 explanations for why there were 12 basketfuls left over. I'm sure that there's a reason. 
But maybe the most basic reason is the idea you read in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul says this, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If anybody learned that lesson, it was Andrew, who said, look, we got five barley loaves and we got a couple of fish. And for Jesus, that was all he needed. And of course, he didn't need five. Four would have been enough. Three would have been enough. Two would have been enough. One would have been enough. He could have just did what he did in the beginning and he could have spoke all of it into existence like he spoke the universe into existence. The point is, he can do far more abundantly above and beyond what you and I ever dreamed or imagined or even thought to ask for. He can do much with little. He's been doing it for a long time. In the beginning, he creates everything out of nothing. He takes dirt and he breathes into it and it becomes a human being. He takes a staff of a cowardly shepherd and uses it to part a sea right down the middle. He takes the sling of a shepherd boy and he uses it to plant a rock right in the forehead of a giant. He takes a virgin girl from Nazareth takes her to Bethlehem, and through her, the Messiah is born. God has been doing this all the way through the Bible, and he can still do it today. God does everything with nothing. Jesus can do much with little. And I hope that's encouraging to you as you sit here today. I want you to read a quote from James Boyce. He says, don't make the mistake of thinking that what you have is insignificant and therefore useless. It is not the magnitude of the gift. It is into whose hands it is given. If you will take what you have, no matter how small or how great it may be, and place it in the hands of the master, you will find that it is more than sufficient for whatever task he sets before you. Jesus will put you in a situation where you need to have faith. That will happen. He's not asking you to be resourceful. He's not asking you for bright ideas. He's not asking you for counsel or advice. He's just asking you to say, Jesus, this is above my pay grade, and I'm going to trust you to come through. And all I have is five crumbly loaves of barley bread and two small pickled minnows. And I think you can take that, and I think you can make it enough. All he wants you to do is to come to him and say, Jesus, I really don't have anything to offer you but sin. I'm a mess. I'm a train wreck of a person. I made a mess of my life. I have fallen short of your standards. I ruin everything that I touch. It just falls apart. That's all I have to offer you. And his response is, that's enough. I can take that and I can make something out of it. I hope that's encouraging to you as a human being. To know that Jesus is not dependent on you to present him with something particularly valuable or useful. You just give him what you have, and what you have is sin. And he can make you a child, a citizen of his kingdom. I hope that's encouraging for us as a church. 
You might look around at other churches and say, well, they have more people or they have more money or they have a bigger building or they have this or they have that. Look, none of that matters. Lord, this is what we have. This is all we have to give you. And we just want you to use it. And we believe that what we have is enough for you to do above and beyond what we ever imagined you could do. I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray.